Welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road, a church with congregations in Guildford, Woking and Aldershot in the UK. To find out more about who we are and what we're up to, please visit us online at EmmausRoad.com. Well done for surviving the near apocalyptic floods today. It's appropriate because you know uh, we're in the middle of a series. It's the fourth in a series entitled Stranger Times, A Beginner's Guide to the Apocalypse. Uh, And uh, I feel like I've kind of drawn a short straw. Um, I don't know. I have suspicions, but I don't know for sure who drew up the preaching schedule. Uh, But here's the bare facts, and I'm just going to lay these out for you right at the start. First of all, uh, two weeks ago, you had Pete Burton speaking on Revelation chapter 1. Jesus saying, don't be afraid, I'm the Alpha and Omega. Now, that is an easy, like any of you, like any of you, even if you're here and you're not sure you're Christian, I reckon you could do a preach on that. That's easy. Don't be impressed. That was easy. And then last week, uh, you had Kuzak, Bill Kuzak, on Revelation 3, which is, behold, I stand at the door and knock, for crying out loud. That is that is like such a simple preach. And then they're like, Pete, will you follow up? I'm like, yeah, this is a great series. What have I got? Revelation 13. So, ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you this evening, we are going to be looking at a dragon, two monsters, the Antichrist, the Mark of the Beast, and 666 in the next half hour. <laughs> yes. Uh, I'm not exaggerating either. Just turn to the person next to you and say, this is exactly what I hoped we'd talk about on this rainy November day. Um, I, 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 do, I do warn you, this is the chapter in the Bible that has given rise to no end of conspiracy theories, seriously dodgy theology, and some of the worst heavy metal albums of all time. Uh, but I promise you, that uh, if this is a chapter of the Bible that you've sometimes thought, what on earth does that mean? Uh, this is scary, this is confusing, or you've just avoided it because it's just too intense, that in half an hour's time, I think you will have a much better grid on getting your head around it. And you might even think, that's actually a really interesting and useful bit of the Bible. And yes, even that is something God speaks through. Is that a deal? Okay. So... Um, we, we always kind of say this, but I, I really mean it. The, you know, the Bible is the Word of God. Every bit of it is inspired. This is one of the bits that some people would go, really? Like, was, had God just been eating something weird when he inspired John to write this? Uh, but I wonder if you could stand, if you're able to do so, as a sign of respect for God's Word as Daniel comes and reads the whole of Revelation chapter 13. And uh, give him your ears, because uh, this fasten your seatbelts and try not to think about meatloaf and bat out of hell uh, as you hear this. So, Daniel, over to you. So, Revelation 13. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear, and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne, and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. But it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All whose names had not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain for the creation of the world. Whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, 
Into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb. It spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose fatal wound had been healed. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs, it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast. It deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to, br- to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to remark to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads, so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is 666. Thanks be to God. Daniel, you read that beautifully. Thank you. The, the man who read that passage in one of the morning services today, who's a professional actor, um, literally, as he passed the microphone back to me after reading it, he whispered, good luck. <laughs> Yikes. What on earth are we to make of all of that? Uh, well, I'm going to attempt an explanation. And then I'm going to attempt an application so that this is not just vaguely interesting but relevant to our lives. And then I'm going to leave Robbie to uh, lead things forward from there. So it's World War II. It's Hut 8 at Bletchley Park. And Alan Turing is slaving away, building a computer that will ultimately successfully decode German naval cryptoanalysis and crack the Enigma code. As you probably know, it's estimated that by cracking that code, Alan Turing shortened the Second World War by as much as two years and saved at least 14 million lives. No wonder Time magazine said he was one of the top 100 uh, most influential people of the last century. And uh, that's why in 2019, our £50 notes got a new face on them, Alan Turing. I'm sure you're all extremely familiar with a £50 note. Today's passage read by Daniel there, Revelation chapter 13, is written in code. And it is apparently impenetrable. It's written in code because a bit like uh, what Alan Shearing was wrestling with, it was written at a very dark and dangerous time, as we, we shall see. Without the interpretation, it's just plain disturbing and confusing but when we find the keys to the code, it's actually enlightening and challenging, as we shall see. Tiny bit of backstory. When I lived in Hong Kong, uh, I was kind of, it was a time in my life I was kind of coming awake spiritually. I was discovering that God was real. I was getting, I was experiencing being filled with the Holy Spirit. I was, ex- I was discovering all this really exciting stuff about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I was working with a lady called Jackie Pullinger, and we were, we were praying with uh, heroin addicts and, and triad gang members and helping people get free of their addictions. It was very exciting. And I remember being in that very different culture 
walking down the street past these little Buddhist shrines with these little plastic Buddhas sitting there, clearly just a bit of plastic, probably worth about 20p. Uh, and in front of that, there were these little saucers where people offered their oranges and their joysticks uh, and their gifts to these little plastic Buddhas. And I remember thinking, this is weird. On one hand, this is completely fake. But on another hand, I felt like there must be something going on spiritually behind all of that. That wasn't good. And I remember someone saying to me, just wait till the Dragon Boat Festival. Tourists just think it's this cool Dragon Boat thing in Hong Kong. But they would say, no, it's got some very serious and dark religious undertones. Just wait. And what you'll find is the spiritual warfare all kicks off. I was like, that's ridiculous. But sure enough, when the Dragon Boat racing came... Uh, all this weird stuff started to go on. And in fact, we had to rotor on more staff to care for the uh, guys, the brothers we were bringing off drugs because everything would suddenly pop in their lives. And I began to realize, oh my goodness, there's like this dark side to life and there's probably even demons and stuff. And then I got on a plane, a Cathay Pacific plane, uh, back to leafy Surrey and I was like, where have all the demons gone? Maybe we just don't have them here. We are so respectable. We just don't have any of that stuff. Or maybe I just don't see them in my own culture. I kind of get blind to them. This chapter, in fact, this whole book, Revelation, seeks to draw back the curtain. That's, remember, the meaning of the word apocalypse. It's not necessarily about the end times. It's an unveiling. It seeks to draw back the curtain on reality and show us the cosmic battle that is going on, raging all around us. If you ever wonder, why is it just so blooming hard being a Christian? Or why is it so difficult speaking up for my faith at college or at school or at work? Or why is it so difficult standing up for my faith and being different in this culture? Uh, then the Apostle John who's sitting in exile on a prison island called Patmos, having this incredible vision and writing it down and sending it out to the seven churches. The Apostle John comes in with the answer to your questions. And he says, the reason it's like this, the reason it feels like a battle is because it's a battle. It's because things are not as they seem. Behind the natural world is a supernatural realm. Behind the reality you see with your eyes, there is a vast cosmic battle raging over the choices that you make and the steps that you take. Now, that might sound strange, but it's actually a theme that is explored throughout our culture today and down the ages. From Dante's Inferno to Milton's Paradise Lost to George Orwell's 1994. From Star Wars to Blade Runner to the Marvel movies to the Matrix franchise. They're all saying there's something else to life out there and it is dark and there is a battle and yet there's light and there is something spiritual going on. Behind the utopia of modern Western life is a deep and dark dystopia and we know it. We see it in the mental agony experienced by millions of people when outwardly life is better than ever before. In the unspeakable evil that we read about every single day in our newspapers and at times we experience in our own lives. By this intractable selfishness and greed and cruelty that seems to be at the very heart of humanity. In our own experiences of persecution for our faith and sickness and death. And then, if we're really honest, in the darkest recesses of all of our own minds the daily battles we fight with temptation, condemnation, and everything in between. So there's a big old battle. And uh, John is writing about 95 AD. And he graphically depicts the personification of this dark side 
uh, using various metaphors. We often call it Satan. Satan actually isn't a name. It just means the enemy. We don't actually have a name. There is no name for the personification of evil. We just have descriptors, the liar, the thief, and in this passage, the dragon, as we shall see, the enemy. Uh, but that is the personification. And it is graphically depicted by John here as an unholy trinity, which violently hates Jesus and his followers. And so what is that trinity? Well, it's three. Firstly, there is, in verse 1, a great red dragon. Okay, you picturing that? Don't think about whales. Not whales. Like a scary red dragon. And then also in verse 1, we read about a beast that is coming out of the sea. Imagining that. And then in verse 11, another beast, and this one is coming out of the earth. So there's an earth beast, a sea beast, and a big red dragon. Is this to be taken literally? Well, I want you to think for a second about a genre we're actually all very familiar with, political cartoons. In the 1960s, at the height of the Cold War, you would often see cartoons that depicted Uncle Sam wrestling with a big bear. And no one thought, yes, one day an old man in a top hat will wrestle with a bear. <laughs> Everyone understood, no, it's America and Russia. And if you took that back to 95 AD and drew them a picture of a man in a top hat wrestling a bear, they would have no clue what you were talking about. And in the same way, some of these metaphors, we have no clue what is going on here. Fast forward a few years, and in 1997, the Los Angeles Times ran a picture. It's the day that Hong Kong returned from British rule to Chinese rule, and it just showed a big dragon coming out of Hong Kong Bay. No one expected a literal dragon. They understood what it meant. Fast forward to 2014, the Kiev Times. They're the capital of Ukraine. Sorry, the Kiev Post. And there was a cartoon of a big bear with a fish in its jaws. And on the fish, it said Crimea. And the bear is saying to the fish, don't worry, I'm saving you from drowning. Do you understand? We're not like, where's the bear? We know it's Russia and Crimea is clearly the fit. We understand these metaphors. Now, the key, therefore, to understanding what these images are pointing towards is, like Alan Turing, we've got to find the code. And the code is this. All you've got to do is know a bit about the Old Testament and a little bit of Hebrew. And it's actually going to become really clear. Don't worry, I'll help you. So, first of all, red dragon. Rah! Well, in chapter 12, if you read the previous chapter, verse 9, it says of the red dragon, that serpent of old. Where does your brain go when you hear that, that serpent of old? Yeah, it's Genesis. It's the Garden of Eden. It's the first personification of evil. Interestingly, that serpent of old, the red dragon, prowls around in front of a pregnant woman. And she gives birth, and it tries to kill the baby and fails. Where's your mind going right now? Go on in. Bethlehem. Herod trying to kill Jesus, right? Okay, let's jump now to the book of Job, which is actually, interesting, the oldest book in the Old Testament. Uh, the book of Job, which, again, most of the listeners and readers of these letters would have been familiar with. The book of Job describes two great monsters, Leviathan and Behemoth. Leviathan was a sea monster. Behemoth was an earth monster. So the Hebrew mind listening to John's letters is going, oh, okay, we got the snake from the Garden of Eden, Genesis, and we've got Job's two monsters, and they've kind of clubbed together as some kind of a weird like antithesis of the Trinity. Interesting. Let's keep going. Now, the real key, this is Alan Turing's ka-ching moment. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, the prophet Daniel, remember he's living in Babylon. 
as in Daniel in the lion's den and all of that, that Daniel has had a dream. And in his dream, he sees four beasts. These beasts represent four different empires, okay? He's clear about that. And uh, the beasts are these. One is like a lion. The second is like a bear. The third is like a leopard. And the fourth is indescribable. If you don't believe me, you can look it up in Daniel 7 later. Now, remember that. So we've got lion, bear, leopard. So, verse 2 of chapter 13. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. Guys, this isn't coincidence. They all know exactly. Oh, my goodness. You mean that Daniel's vision of the four beasts have been kind of rolled together into one beast with little different bits all over the place. They understood it. And so the, they know that this represents empire because that's what the original code set down by Daniel represented. Daniel said that these four empires were, if you like, worldly powers that had become bestial. Instead of operating under God's authority, they had started to operate as God. In other words, they were states that started to demand allegiance and even worship. Remember, Daniel himself and his friends were commanded to bow down and worship an idol that represented a succession of empires. And they said they wouldn't, and you know they got uh, thrown into the fiery furnace for it. And so... There is some reference here in this letter in code to evil empire. So let's just recap. And we've got a slide uh, for this next bit. What do we have here? Well, we have two beasts representing the state demanding total allegiance, operating under the dominion of Satan, who is a dragon. For the Apostle John, this is almost certainly representing the Emperor Nero. Nero was not a nice man. Nero had killed his own mother and killed his wife and killed his foster brother. He had set fire to Rome, almost certainly, in order to clear the way for himself to build a golden palace. He had then blamed the Christians for the fire that had killed lots of people and thereby launched the first great persecution against the church. He had, uh, by fairly reliable traditions, even hung Christians up and burnt them at parties. Tradition says that it was under Nero that both the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul were killed. We don't know how Paul was killed, but tradition says that Peter was crucified. But when they sentenced him to crucifixion, he said, I'm not worthy to be crucified like my Lord. And so they crucified him upside down. So this is being written by the Apostle John. And he knows Paul and he knows Peter and they have been killed by Nero. No wonder when he's trying to describe the evil, the demonic nature of this empire and this emperor, he uses the most hideous imagery he can find. Nero then committed suicide at the age of 32. And this was 25 years, actually, before this letter gets written. Okay, so Nero is no longer on the throne. But there was a widespread belief, particularly in the east of the Roman Empire, that Nero either hadn't died or was coming back again. Hello? That he would rise from the dead. This evil would return. We have lots of ancient records of people assuming that to be the case. And you say, well, that was very primitive. What about the people who think Elvis Presley is working in a chip shop in Bognor Regis? And so... This is going on, and remember in the vision, the beast has a wound, a mortal wound. Now, mortal wound is meant to mean that it's killed you, but he's somehow survived it. This is Nero. The mortal wound, he seems to have survived the threat that this evil could come back at any moment. 
By the way, all the time we find the, this anti-Trinity is mimicking the Holy Trinity. So, for example, the uh, beast from the earth looks like a lamb with two horns. And throughout the book of Revelation, Jesus is described as the Lamb of God. But this one, it says, spoke with the voice of the dragon. So it kind of looks like Jesus, but he's speaking evil. And here you've got an emperor who has committed suicide, but people think he might come back from the grave. By the way, Nero loved publicity and adulation, and he would make public appearances at the games, Colosseum and elsewhere, sometimes playing an actor or a poet or an athlete. And this caused absolute shame and dismay amongst the sophisticated urban elite. Our emperor should not be behaving like this. But the working classes loved him for it. So let's just be clear here. Here we have a ruthless narcissist who is both compulsive and corrupt, who galvanizes the masses through showmanship and will do literally anything to retain power. Hello? This is not an unfamiliar trope in the modern world. Before you say, oh, this is just all old-fashioned stuff. From, you know, the president of China's complete power that he's now gained for himself, the greatest since Mao, through to Trump's tweets, through to President Putin's calendar, for crying out loud. The bending of truth, the retaining of power, the narcissism, the worship me. Okay, now we get to the really fun bit. 666 and the mark of the beast. Turn to the person next to you and say, oh, I can hardly wait. <laughs> Are you still with me? Are you still with me? Is this okay? Like, I mean, I know, I know you didn't get out of bed this morning saying, what I really want to do this evening is think about this stuff. But it is a whole chapter of the Bible. We do believe it's inspired, and I'm trying to just decode it a little bit for you. So I hope this will be useful. So the good news is Mark of the Beast 666 is actually quite simple. Trust me. goes like this. Mark of the Beast. It's on the forehead and the hands. So people get all kind of wacko about it. But here's the deal. If you're Jewish and you listen to this and someone says forehead and hands, you instantly know because the most prayed prayer in all of Judaism is called the Shema. It's from Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. They prayed this continually, like many times a day, due to this day. The very last prayer that you would pray before you died is the, is, is the Shema, the Hear, O Israel. And we're told in Deuteronomy... This is so important. Bind it to your foreheads. Write it on your hands. Orthodox Jews to this day, you'll sometimes see them, will wear a phylactery on their head. They take it literally and you, they have it written in a box on their head and on their foreheads. Why? Because this is saying, with all your thoughts and with all that you do, offer allegiance to the one true God. Bring your thinking and your doing under the one true God, right? So here is this beast, this anti-Christ, this mimic of God that is demonic and evil saying, take my mark on your forehead and your hands. Are you with me? They're like, oh, we, they're there. They immediately understand it. Now, therefore, what is the 666 bit about? Well, people have gone nuts with this over the years, of course, uh, people have said 666 is kind of the Pope's phone number, you know, something to do with Adolf Hitler, uh, Stalin, Martin Luther. Poor old Ronald Reagan, you know, the former um, US president. Ronald Reagan, his middle name was Wilson. And uh, therefore, Ronald is six letters, Wilson is six letters, and Reagan is six letters. You can imagine how crazy people went with that, 666. And this is absolutely true. He and his wife, Nancy, once bought a house in Bel Air, California. And the number in the street, you'll never guess, 666. People went insane about that. And then he kind of lost his marbles tragically and died. 
and they went a bit quiet about him, the whole him being the Antichrist thing. Some people have said it's barcodes. When barcodes first came out, you know, you've got the little number, and it's something about trading, if you listen carefully to Revelation 13. Some Christians say, we're, we're not using barcodes, so it's a mark of the beast. But probably they've just all starved by now because you just can't buy anything without a barcode anymore. What on earth is going on here? Well, let me give you two little keys, little Alan Turing keys that might help unlock the code. The first is this. In Jewish thought, numbers are significant. The perfect number is, anyone know? Seven. Right. And if you want to say perfect, perfect, you say that number either three times or seven times. So you say seven, seven, seven. Or you say seven, 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 seven. That's seven, seven times. And so six, six, six is it's back to this lamb speaking with the voice of the dragon. It's like a parody of perfection. It's close to and yet will never be. It's the angel masquerading as light. You understand? Now, the next key to understanding 666 is this. There was a, a common uh, a, a sort of um, mechanism in the ancient world, in Hebrew and in Greco-Roman thought, and it was called uh, gematria. Gematria was, you took the letters of the alphabet, every letter in the alphabet was attributed a number, and so they could turn words into numbers. This was quite common. There's a bit of graffiti that was found on the wall of a cave in Pompeii that says this, um, I love her whose name is 545. Now, I assume this wasn't some poor girl who had been called 545. I mean, I mean, if you're going to call your daughter a number, it might be number two, number three, number four, according to how many children you've had. You're not going to say 545. This is, no, this is code because this guy's getting all bashful. He doesn't realize it won't be read for like a thousand years or something. He's like, oh, I mustn't let out her name since 545. But they'd have been able to trace that to the letters and known what it meant. This is gematria. Well, if you spell Nero Caesar beast, it's 666 in the Hebrew. So there's lots of reasons for pushing all this back onto Emperor Nero in John's thinking. But if you sat John and said, ah, there you go. All the heavy metal albums are wrong. It was Emperor Nero. He would say, well, kind of, but not. Because the way John thinks is this. Right now, the, if you like, the manifestation of the spirit of Antichrist that, 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 that demonically imitates God and demands worship it has been Nero. But I know that in the time of Daniel, who's inspired so much of my writing, it wasn't Nero, it was Babylon that was demanding worship. And that was the spirit, he wouldn't have said, of Antichrist. Of course, in the Old Testament, anti-Yahweh, the anti-Shamar. And then you had the Persian kingdom, and then you had the, you know, the Greek kingdom, and, and now you've got the Roman kingdom. And so Antichrist can be personified, but ultimately, and by the way, if someone, for example, was to create a multinational company that controlled people's minds and created an alternative reality free of God that somehow demanded allegiance, affection, attention, and most of your time, he would be in serious danger of starting to channel the spirit of anti-Christ. You with me? You see, this is a meme through history. Where is anti-Christ? By the way, when I said that about Meta, in the earlier service, a man came up to me who used to work at a very high level for Meta. He's a member of our church. I said, was I overdoing it? He said, you were underdoing it. You were not stating how dangerous what's happening with the Metaverse is. I'm like, whoa, we need a, I know Robbie's immediately thinking this, whoa, we need a conversation at a deeper level. So this is something that keeps uh, popping up down the ages. And as Christians, we have to work out how to live with it. Now, do you remember I said that John is writing in 95 AD, 25 years after Nero. So what's going on here? Well, as well as the rumors that Nero might not be dead, 
he is writing under another emperor called Domitian. Domitian has just issued a decree telling everyone in the Roman Empire, which is basically everyone in the known world, that they have to go to their local public square. So I don't know what that would be in Guildford. I don't know, top of the high street by the statue or something. You have to go to your local public square and you will be required to put a pinch of incense on an altar and declare Dominus et Deus, Lord and God, over Domitian. In other words, you have to go and worship and declare that Domitian, your emperor, is your Lord and your God. And there was someone keeping records to see who did and didn't do it. And if you didn't do it, you could go to prison or be killed. I just want you to just picture this moment. By the way, this isn't strange. This is happening right now in North Korea and various other places on earth. We have people in this church who have been in prison in Iran for refusing, as it were, to bow down before the state. This is, this is real, okay? What this means is, if this... If we were alive then, or this could maybe one day happen again, you as a Christian have to decide, am I willing to sprinkle the incense on the altar or not? And, and the church at the time, like probably the church today, was divided. There were the pragmatists going, it's only a pinch of incense. I can repent afterwards. And it means I can care for my kids, you know, and continue to drive my Audi, you know. <laughs> And so there were basically those compromising, and then there were others saying, no, Jesus Christ is my Lord and no other, and I will not bow down, and he can put me in prison or he can kill me, but I'm not backing down. And so one of the reasons the book of Revelation is getting written is John is saying to the seven churches, don't bow down to the state. Don't bow down to the powers who are demanding your allegiance because your allegiance belongs to Jesus Christ. Do you understand? This is serious stuff. Are you still with me? It's so good. Pete Sheath and I are having a great time. <laughs> are you still with me? Thank you. My wife is also excited. It's the third time she's heard this talk. It's absolutely brilliant. She's amazing. Can I have a round of applause for my wife, please? We're, we're about to come into land. Don't worry. Um, so, uh, yes, there we have it, Domitian. <sighs> so how do we respond to all of this? What on earth do we do? Well, I want to nick um, something from a brilliant theologian called Daryl Johnson, who wrote a great book about the book of Revelation called Discipleship on the Edge. And I want to suggest three postures that we need to adopt if we're followers of Jesus, the Lamb who suffered, in uh, a world that is trying to demand our allegiance and control us. The first posture we need is skepticism, an attitude of healthy skepticism towards political power and dominant cultural norms. And if you're relatively young, you're probably like, obviously I'm not going to, you know, give my allegiance to, you know, political powers. They're all a bunch of idiots. But I suspect many of you have already absorbed dominant cultural norms wholesale without questioning. And some of you who are a bit older are like, I'm not absorbing those crazy cultural norms but you're putting all your hope in a Labour government or you know, a Tory government or something else. Be a little sceptical about these things. We don't put our trust ultimately in human authority, but in the kingdom of heaven. Bishop Leslie Newbegin said, the so-called secular society is not a neutral area into which we can project the Christian message. It is an area already occupied by the gods. So that's the first thing. The second thing is this. As well as skepticism, we need a little bit of discernment. In fact, we need a lot of discernment. Because 
we are told by the Apostle Paul to submit to the government. You know, the Apostle Paul says the government's been put in place by God. The good ones, the bad ones, you, you kind of owe them duty of submission. But understand that your submission to the powers is conditional. This is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer discovered under Nazism. It's conditional. And so what that means is when the state requires you to do things that are in line with the way of Jesus, who is your authority, do them. Uh, you pay your taxes, you know, because that's, it may not be very efficient, but it's kind of how we run hospitals and educate children and build roads. But when the state asks you to do things that are opposed to the way of Jesus, which I want to suggest to you is going to increasingly happen in our world, what you do is you follow the way of Martin Luther King and you exercise civil disobedience. You say, you can put me in prison, that's your right, but I am not going to obey this law. And so Martin Luther King saw that there was institutionalized racial oppression in the American system. And he didn't try and replace the government, he tried to change the laws of the land by mobilizing millions of people to break the law because they said it was an unjust law. And then they didn't say, you can't prosecute. They said, yeah, we've broken the law, you better put me in prison. We are going to flood your prisons so you can't even cope anymore. You see, this is you know, Gandhi really pioneered this, but the civil disobedience. It's submission to the state, but in a way that exercises discernment. Finally... Skepticism, discernment, allegiance. I believe this chapter of the Bible powerfully calls us to renew our unconditional allegiance to Jesus Christ, the Lamb upon the throne. We need to repent of nationalism, of worshipping socio-political ideologies. Do you know, we used to live in the Midwest of America. I used to get very troubled I, I still do. I often see in parts of America an American flag wrapped around a cross, and I can't quite work out which people are worshipping. But the rise of nationalism in Italy right now, around different countries, around, and in this country we've certainly seen our share of it. We have no part in nationalism because our citizenship is in heaven. We need to recommit ourselves to living radically differently. I remember I had a job once in a 7-Eleven. You know those 7-Eleven stores, convenience stores? Mostly it was like slush puppies and um, uh, chocolate bars and stuff. But this is going to age me a bit, but just bear with me here. Back then, the top two rows of the magazine rack was porn mags, okay? Um, because, you know, that was where how you got porn back then. And as a follower of Jesus, I started to feel increasingly uncomfortable that men would come in and I would effectively hand them a porn mag and take their money. And then I was praying about it, saying, oh God, I don't feel right about that, it's weird. And then I'm like, oh, don't be so stupid, it's just a job and they're going to buy it anyway. And all that stuff started going in my head and I began to wrestle in prayer and eventually I was like, I just can't do this. And I still remember how embarrassed I felt going in to see the manager saying, listen, it's kind of against my religion. And uh, what I'd prefer is if someone else on staff could serve people when they want to buy porn mags. But if that's difficult, I'll just quit. And it, what, do you know what was hard? I just felt so naive. I just felt like I don't belong. I felt like some kind of Puritan. I felt strange in this culture, which is, of course, exactly how we are supposed to feel in this culture as followers of Jesus. I have a friend who's a very senior banker. He said when he started out his career, all these ambitious young men and women, and he said the pressure on them was to work 60, 70, even 80-hour weeks. Like, insane! And they were being paid insane amounts of money for it. And he said, I'm a follower of Jesus. Therefore, although I'm committed to my job and I want to do well for my bosses, I refuse to worship my career. And he said, therefore, I am not going to work your insane hours. I'll do a bit of overtime, but not much, because I am committed to my family and my marriage 
and to being at church on Sunday and being amongst the people of God. He said, I, I'm clear about that. He said it was difficult because for many years, the people who were working the insane hours were being promoted over him. He said, I had to get to a place where I just said, you know what? I'm not going to be that successful at work because I am a follower of Jesus and I refuse to worship my career. The funny thing is, and funny enough, we're going to be seeing this guy tonight and he's now relatively elderly. He said, ultimately, I was promoted way above every single one of them. In the, I'm not promising this is what will happen to you. The passage says, you know, if it's to prison, to prison you will go. So I'm not promising you that if you just do this, it will be easy. But what happened for him is he said, ultimately, people said to him, do you know what? You've got values. Your marriage is solid. You seem to have principles. You're a nice person. And he became more successful than any of them eventually, but he had to be willing to die to all of that. And so I don't know what it looks like for you. Entomologists did this experiment with butterflies. You've got male and female butterflies. And they, they made little cardboard cutouts of female butterflies that were slightly more attractive than the actual butterfly, female butterflies. They had slightly bigger wings, slightly brighter colors. I don't know what it is if you're... Pete, if you're a male butterfly, what is it? What turns you? I don't know what turns you. But anyway, they did this with these, 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 with it, with these, with these cardboard cutouts, and 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 males of any species are just basically idiots. The male butterflies would go and mount these cardboard, slightly more attractive replicas again and again, whilst the poor little females are there just flapping their wings, being completely ignored. Some of the girls here are like, I, mm-hmm, yeah. You're describing the party last night. No. <laughs> C.S. Lewis once used the most stunning phrase. He talked about the sweet poison of the false infinite. The sweet poison of the false infinite. The substitute sacreds that we pursue. The false infinites that we put our trust in. The things that we use to fill the vacuum of our disenchanted world. It can be so tempting, can't it, to think that, well, to drink that poison of the false infinite, to think, oh, when we get a Labour government, everything will be better. Or if I have that perfect relationship, my life will be fulfilled. Or if I suddenly inherit a load of money, my life will be great. Or if I get famous or whatever it is, I wonder what is it that commands your attention and your affection and even tempts you to worship it. Again and again as followers of Jesus, we must refuse to put the pinch of incense on the altar because we only have one Lord and God and it's Jesus Christ. We must refuse to bow down to the idols of our time. And maybe this sounds difficult, and that's because it is difficult. It is going to hurt like hell. But here's the great news. At the time that John was writing, it was unthinkable that the Roman Empire would eventually end. It was unthinkable. But actually, we know that it was the lamb who suffered and not the dragon which oppressed which prevailed. Empires come and go. Human powers fall. Meta will be yesterday's company before long. Twitter might already be yesterday's company. The future right now for the United Kingdom honestly looks bleak. Godless ideologies already control much of our media. But fear not. Our hope is not here. We have seen the end of the story, and the Lamb wins. Every form of oppression ultimately fails. Humility wins the day. And so I wonder if we could just stand together. It'd be great to get the band back. You've listened really well. I've loaded a lot of stuff on you. I hope there's some helpful code in there. But here's where we need to finish. When the Apostle John wrote this, he wasn't 
hoping he could elicit a response of, oh, that's so interesting. Oh, so the dragon represents that and the beast represents that and 666. He wasn't interested in that. He was writing to speak to people's hearts. His longing was that the people of God then, as now, would offer unconditional allegiance to Jesus Christ. I said there is a battle raging over the choices that we make and every step that we take. And so I'd love us now just to pray a prayer in, in a moment. And this is a prayer written, let's get it up on the screen, written by John Wesley himself, the great 18th century revival leader. And it's, it's, it's often called the uh, Methodist Covenant Prayer because the Methodists pray this millions and millions of them every year at New Year. And it's one of the most challenging prayers I know of just allegiance to Jesus Christ. And I think it's always good to read words like this before we pray them. So just take a look at those. And do you know what? If there's any lines that you feel, I can't pray that, I'd really respect you for not praying it. But just take a look at that. Okay, so we're just going to, those of us who'd like to do so, this is a moment of saying, Jesus is my Lord and God. I'm not bowing down to any other power or authority. I'll offer the state my conditional submission. I'll exercise discernment that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And so uh, we're being led in prayer here by John Wesley himself. But if you'd like to do so, join with me in praying this prayer. And from there, we're just going to go to worship and, and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us some more and respond. But let's pray. I am no longer my own, but thine. Put me to what thou wilt. Rank me with whom thou wilt. Put me to doing. Put me to be suffering. Let me be employed for thee or laid aside for thee exalted for thee or brought low for thee. Let me be full, let me be empty. Let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thou art mine and I am thine. And so be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. Amen. Beautiful. Thanks, guys. Sorry we've got to shoot off. Have fun.